Thank you, Colton. My name is Brian, not Colton. I'm glad to be back. I'm grateful for both Coltons, grateful for the opportunity to be back with you, the Fields Church. Thank you for the opportunity to go and preach at Redeemer Church in Fort Worth last week. It was a joy to be with them and uh, to see uh, their faces again after worshiping with them this past summer on our sabbatical. We got to be back with them. I trust uh, and uh, that you were served well. I got to listen to the sermon from Brett uh, on the way home from preaching at Redeemer. It was already uploaded and ready for me on my drive home. A wonderfully encouraging word uh, with uh, some of the same applications that, that uh, I preached at Redeemer, uh, that uh, we do not have to wait uh, for, to draw near to the river of life. We have that available to us right here, right now because of Christ. And so it was an encouraging word for him, thankful for their church uh, in partnership with the gospel in our city, uh, them and many others. I um, want to just uh, also encourage you to be praying for um, Pastor Graham and pray for his wife Bethany. Bethany's sick, that's why Graham's not here with us this morning, and so I'm thankful for other brothers filling in the gap this morning. Uh, but as Colton read, as he described a page-turner uh, in your Bible of a passage, all of John 17, uh, we have much work to do, uh, but, but an, a great opportunity this morning to consider uh, Jesus' prayer in whole. And I figured that if Jesus prayed this prayer in four to five minutes, surely I could preach it in 45 minutes. Uh, nevertheless, giving us time in, at the end of our time to pray ourselves and uh, to take part in the Lord's Supper, which is a meal that we eat uh, as followers of Christ that binds us together. Uh, some might call it communion. And is that not what Jesus prayed for uh, in His prayer, that we would be unified, um, brought together in union as one, and this meal is a regular meal, a regular reminder of that oneness that we have in Jesus Christ. So I look forward to eating it with a special application for us this morning at the end of, of John 17. But earlier this week, uh, we were having lunch together as a family, as we often do, uh, one of the blessings of schooling at home and working from home. And so we met in the kitchen, we were eating together and Joy and the kids were describing a book that they were reading, and uh, they proceeded to, to describe this book called The Singing Tree, and it describes a father at this point in the story knowing that he's about to go to war. And as he goes to war, uh, or is preparing to go to war, he's not going to tell any of the family. Uh, and he is going to go and make preparations for uh, going away from the family. And as they're describing this and the father going away and um, getting the oldest son ready and not telling anybody, I'm listening to this and, and all of a sudden, like water happens to show up in my eyes. Uh, I think I got something in my eye and I'm, I'm just thinking about the father making all of these preparations to go away and all of a sudden I just had to get up and go do dishes. Because uh, I just was, you know, couldn't take it anymore. And so I get up and go away. But as I th was thinking about that, though it was the father 
preparing the son uh, for his going away in that story, a lot of the same implications uh, we find in this passage. And this passage is not a father going away, but it's the son, uh, God the son of God the father who's going away from his disciples. But the same uh, preparation has gone into preparing these disciples for his departure. And we come to the very end of Jesus' preparing the disciples for his departure. And what does he do? What does Jesus do after spending years with these disciples, having shown him that he is the one and only true Son of God, um, having spent night after night, day after day, teaching them that he really was the true and only Son of God? Um, having spent this evening with them, and we have four chapters, John 13 through 16, of Jesus laying out the, the details of what was to come and preparing them for his own departure. Um, Jesus spends this last moment, having looked at his disciples eye to eye, horizontally, spoken, uh, speaking to them from the heart, preparing them for his departure, he now lifts his gaze upward. He now looks up. He looks not horizontally anymore. He looks vertically, and he prays to the Father. And he asks the Father um, to move in their midst, to not only help him to persevere through what was coming, he asks for help from the Father to help these disciples by keeping them and sanctifying them, and he asked for help for the church that would come afterwards, that they would be one so that others in the world might believe and have life in his name. Jesus' last moments with his disciples was prayer. Prayer to the Father, dependence upon the Father, dependence upon the help that comes from God alone to, to do this work. And this would be right for us to follow suit when we consider going out to be the church in the world. We've spoken about it uh, horizontally. We've considered these things time and time again, week after week. We've considered them once again. We're going to have some time later to, to look up, to gaze up, look heavenward, and ask the Lord for the help that we need when we go out to be the church in the world. But this is how Jesus closes his time. There in John 17, some of you may uh, may be able to read in your Bibles a, a title there above John 17. You may know this as the High Priestly Prayer. And it might be called the High Priestly Prayer because Jesus takes on an Aaron-like function uh, for the disciples. Aaron being the priest of the Old Testament and Jesus about to become both the high priest and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice. Um, Jesus is acting in a priestly way here in this passage. Um, but there's so many references in this passage to Jesus calling on His Father, the Holy Father, the Righteous Father. I've, I've entitled this the, the Son's Prayer. Because in there, we're going to see him going to his father and calling on him for help in, in several different areas. And so, this is broken up in really three different parts. 
Really, 1 through 5, Jesus begins to pray for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And then in 20 through 26, he prays for his disciples and those disciples that would come after them, namely the church, that they would be one so that others in the world might believe. And so as we consider this together, think through those, those categories. The first one could be summarized by this, Father, glorify Your Son through the cross. That's what Jesus prays in verses 1-5. through five. Father, glorify Your Son through the cross. And so in 17.1, if you're reading along with me, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, those words that He had spoken to the disciples in chapter 13-16, through 16, He, as I mentioned earlier, lifted uh, His eyes up. He lifted His gaze up. The same action, the same posture Jesus took when He was with Lazarus, or, or outside the tomb of Lazarus. He lifted His eyes up, and like He prayed there, um, with not only calling upon his Father, but also praying amidst all of the other disciples, he does the same thing here. He lifts his eyes to heaven, and just like we sung or, or heard read for us earlier from Psalm 121, it, it's a posture that we ought to take too. That there the psalmist says, as he's traveling from the wherever he was from, He's traveling towards Jerusalem, going up those mountains. And as he looks up to Jerusalem, in Psalm 121, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. And Jesus knew that this is where the help came from, from the Father. And we too ought to take a similar posture in our prayer. Yes, oftentimes there's, there's an opportunity to bow our heads in respect in reverence, in humility, in prayer, realizing that we are nothing and He is everything. At the same time, there's an opportunity to lift our eyes literally, physically to the heavens. Uh, that we would lift our eyes up to the Lord saying, it's only you that my help comes from. And Jesus models that. And as Jesus has taught multiple different times already up to this point, even in the previous passage, he's taught his disciples to ask the Father in Jesus' name and everything that they needed to abide in Him and for their joy to be full would be given to them. And so Jesus, like He has taught His disciples, He too calls out to His heavenly Father, Father, the hour has come. The hour that Jesus has said many times up to this point has not yet come, all of a sudden has come. Uh, the hour, speaking of Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection, the hour, the day, the little while that Jesus was waiting for has finally come. Father, the hour has come. And Jesus prays, even commands, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And so Jesus' prayer is simply, 
Father, glorify me. He had glorified God up to that point in the incarnation. In his life, he had lived perfectly obedient to the Father. Everything that Jesus did glorified God. And now Jesus is turning to God and asking God to glorify Jesus. And what Jesus is meaning here, we get a little bit better clue down in in verse 5 when he says, And now, Father, repeating himself, glorify me in your own presence with your glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, on this evening, the night before uh, Jesus was betrayed, Jesus knew what was coming the, the next day that Friday. He knew that he would be crucified. He knew that he he would be buried. But he also knew that his father would raise him from the dead and that he would appear to many for some 40 days on the earth. And then at the end of those 40 days, he would ascend and be exalted to the right hand of the father on high. That would, would describe what Jesus is meaning here in glorification. Father, glorify me, Jesus says. When I die, raise me. When I appear, exalt me to your right hand. Jesus knew that he was about to be killed, and Jesus is praying, do what we planned to do from the very beginning before the foundation of the world. Jesus had lowered himself, taken on the flesh of mankind, and yet lived a perfectly sinless life. And Jesus is saying, after I go to the cross and I'm in the tomb, raise me up and exalt me eventually to, the right, to your right hand so that I can enjoy the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Essentially, God, make good on our plan that we had in the very beginning because Jesus knew if he didn't go to the cross, if he was not resurrected, if he was not exalted to the right hand, of the right hand of God, the eternal life, the salvation that Jesus came to give to all who would believe wouldn't be, wouldn't be offered. And that's what Jesus is praying in verse 2. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh, and Jesus, just in that little statement, is saying that the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man would come to the Ancient of Days, being God, and God would give him all authority in heaven and on earth. That, that day in Daniel 7 was a prophecy looking forward to the future. And when Jesus says, you've given me all authority, Jesus is saying that Daniel 7 passage has been fulfilled in me. Jesus was the Son of Man. He has come to the Ancient of Days. He's been given all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to Him. And this is the eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is praying that God the Father would glorify Him through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, so that He could give eternal life to all who would repent of their sins, to all who would believe in Jesus Christ 
and his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is asking the Father to make good on this plan because he desires to give this gift to all. And if you're wondering what, what is eternal life, eternal life is, yes, the forgiveness of sin so that you could spend eternity with God. It is, um, yes, that promised eternal future life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. But eternal life, as Jesus says, is simply knowing God. And we know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the entire Gospel of John has been about. John has been retelling this story of Jesus who is, as John 1.18 says, is revealing God who is invisible. And so Jesus, in praying this, He wants those, these disciples, and He wants those that are going to come after Him to know God by knowing Jesus Christ and have eternal life in His name. Jesus finishes in, in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, that, that speaks to both Jesus' incarnation, His perfect sinless knife, life, but it also looks ahead to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension that were as good as done. Jesus can say, I've accomplished them. He's praying for God to glorify Him. Jesus is going to make good on this promise. And so He's essentially saying, I've done what you asked me to do. What, what we had planned before the foundation of the world. And so now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. So here in this beginning uh, or this opening aspect of Jesus' prayer to glorify the Son through the cross, it lays the foundation uh, for, for our hope, for our help as well. That our hope, our help in this life and in the life to come, it comes from the Father, through the Son, and through the cross, through the resurrection. We need to remember that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection is our hope. It is our help. We need to look to the Father who, with the Son and the Spirit, planned that before the foundation of the world. And so just consider all that was done on your behalf, Christian. And let's look back to Him who made good on all of those promises. And let's look to Him for the help that comes in the future. Let's proclaim that good news and that gospel and that help to the world that needs it as well. Let's lift our eyes upward. Let's look to the heavens. Let's look to our Father. And let's look to Christ who now, from this side of the cross, we know He is exalted at the right hand of God. Let's give thanks to God for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is with us always, strengthening us. As He said earlier in, in John 16, convicting us and guiding us into all truth. Let's look to this triune God as our source for hope and our source for help. When we go to the Lord in prayer, let's, let's adore Him. Let's thank Him. 
Let's praise Him for who He is and for all He's done and what He's going to do because all that He said He's going to do, as good as He made good on the promise at the cross and the resurrection, He will make good on those promises as well. And so rest your prayers in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Ask the Father, as Jesus told us, for anything that you need. Uh, for you to abide and for your joy to be full and He'll give you those things. Jesus continues in uh, verses 6-19, through 19, and having prayed for Himself, asking God to glorify Him through the cross, Jesus then begins praying for His disciples. He prays in this section summarized by this prayer of Holy Father, keep them and sanctify them. And as you'll see, even in the word sanctify, you could even say, Holy Father, keep them and make them holy. As he calls out to God being his Holy Father. The first part of the prayer in verses 6 through 11 is much like some of the prayers of the Psalms. And it'd be some of, like, some of your prayers as well. When you begin praying, Father, this week's been hard. You know all that I've been going through. You know the struggles that I face. You know my boss. You know this kid. You know my financial situation. You know that I long for this and all of these kinds of things. And we begin laying out the background of our prayers. And we begin laying out the foundation on which we pause in a certain moment in that prayer and say, God, would you help? Would you move at work? Would you move in home? Would you move in my heart? Would you move in my family? Those kinds of things. The first part of this prayer is a little bit of background information. Not as if God the Father needed, needs to be informed of this background information or our background information in prayer. But as Jesus told us earlier in his prayer outside the tomb of Lazarus, there where he, again, lifted up his eyes to the heavens and prayed to his Father, part of his prayer were for those around him, that they would hear Jesus' prayer and see its fulfillment. And then they too would believe. Uh, they too would trust. They too would pray in a like manner. I think the same thing is happening here. Jesus is praying um, both to the Father in the presence of the disciples that they would recognize all of, all of this, this background information, the, these truths and these realities there. So look in verse 6. Part of Jesus' background foundation of his prayer that comes a little bit later in, in verse 11. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name. Uh, Jesus already said, I've glorified you on earth. Now he's saying, I have manifested your name. We could say, I Jesus would say, I revealed your name. And when Jesus says that I've manifested your name or I've revealed your name, what he's saying is that I have revealed who you are to the world. I've revealed your character. I've revealed your power. Uh, I've revealed your truth. I have revealed, in essence, a name represents the whole person. And Jesus 
is saying both to the Father in the presence of the disciples, I've perfectly manifested and revealed who you are to these disciples and to the watching world. They don't need another to reveal any more of you to them. I've been everything that they need. I've revealed you perfectly. This is why Paul would say in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that Jesus in John 1.18 has made God known to, to those who have not seen Him. And so Jesus says, I have manifested your name, that great I am that Jesus time and time again throughout the Gospel of John has declared Himself to be. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. On and on and on. I've manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, God. And, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. And I would say not, not perfectly, right? We know the disciples too well. We know we who would follow the disciples, nor we have kept Jesus' word perfectly. But what Jesus is meaning here is that, that with the faith that they had been given, they have kept that up to this point. They've believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have life in His name and eternal life stored up for them. And they've kept His Word unlike the rest of the world. So there is a, a difference between the disciples and their faith and the rest of the world. And now Jesus says in verse 7, now they know everything that you have given is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know, the know in truth that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. Jesus revealed that he was the Son of God and revealed that everything that he said was true by doing all of the miracles that he did. John not only records the seven I am statements revealing the, the person and character of God in the I am statements, but he also ha records the seven great miracles of, of Jesus in the Gospel of John that prove that everything that Jesus said was true. For There's no way that Jesus uh, could do those things unless He was the Son of God, which meant that the things that He said were true. In fact, this, this actually is probably Jesus alluding to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of of the promise that was made all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God told Moses that he would raise up a prophet, and in that prophet, he would have the very words of God that would come true, and that the charge was then for them to listen to him. And if you didn't listen to him, then it would be required of you. And so Jesus is, it seems, alluding to the fact that He's the fulfillment of that promise. That He's had the very words of God in Him. And He's proven that by doing these great miracles in that. And thankfully, these disciples have kept His Word. They've listened to Him. 
It would not be required of them in the day when they stand before God because Jesus would die for their sins uh, on the cross. But it would be required of all of those who have rejected Him up to this point. So Jesus is alluding to that Deuteronomy 18.18 promise and prophecy there. And Jesus says specifically in verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. That will come later in, in the prayer. But in this middle section of the prayer, He's praying for the disciples who have believed that He is the Son of God. Who have believed that He has the very words of God. Um, he's praying for them specifically, but also he's, he's praying, as we'll see later in, in the prayer, others who would believe like these disciples on the words of the disciples. And so Jesus is praying for, for those who would believe, specifically though for the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, Jesus says. In verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Jesus was glorified in these disciples believing in Him. It, it exalted Him. It worshipped Him. It praised Him. It adored Him that they would believe His very words and His very actions prove that He was the Son of God. And so in verse 11, He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Something that he has alluded to many times up to this point. And so with that background information, the fact that Jesus was going, that his disciples would be staying, that they've heard his words, kept his words, believed his words about who he was and what he came to do in such a way that it glorified him, Jesus then makes his prayer. And his prayer is in the second half of verse 11 where Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Again, we see that title of Father given uh, that Jesus cries out to God. He's commanded His followers to pray similarly to, that His Father, through faith in Him, has become their Father. And so Jesus encourages them as he does in the Lord's Supper to pray our Father, our Father. And here Jesus adds a, de a descriptor to it, Holy Father. One of the reasons I ask that we would sing that song, Holy, 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 this morning is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, we want to remember in prayer that it is our Father who is holy, not us. And we need Him to make us holy and to keep making us holy day after day after day until one day we are made perfect in His sight. And so Jesus, again looking up, says, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. That would be kind of the first request of this middle section of the prayer. Keeping, keeping them. But the keeping them is twofold in this section of the prayer. It's both a keeping them in Jesus and it's a keeping them from the evil one. It's, it's summarized in that word keep, but it's a keeping in the Lord and it's a keeping from the evil one. 
Look at those played out later in, in verses 11 and 12. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. We'll spend some time on that oneness later on in 20 through 26, but consider that the, the keeping in His name is a keeping as one. Verse 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. And what is the keeping that Jesus really mean? What is that describing? He gives us another clue. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's speaking of Judas, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And so on the heels of Jesus saying that He was coming to the Father, He said, up to this point, I've been keeping them. Jesus has already said this, it's been recorded in the Gospel of John that as the good shepherd, he loses none of his sheep. And so Jesus has been keeping all of those whom the Father had given him, all of those who uh, would believe in him. He hadn't lost one of them. But he knows that he is going to be with the Father after his crucifixion and resurrection uh, at his ascension. And so here he prays, Holy Father, when I come to be with you, you keep them. You keep them. I've kept them up to this point, and I'm praying that you would keep them. It's another reason why it was good and right for us to sing that song from Romans 8 this morning. Thank you, Colton, for leading us. That neither height nor depth nor anything else will pull us apart from Him. Nothing in all of creation will take us away, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a a promise that that Paul wrote for us in Romans 8 that's based on these truths and these realities. And so Jesus is praying, Father, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. I've kept them. Now I'm asking for You to keep them. And Jesus proved that He had kept them well by saying, I haven't, and here we go, air quotes, you ready? I haven't lost any of the them, any of the twelve. He hadn't lost any of his disciples except one, the son of destruction. And Jesus makes mention of even that one that I quote unquote lost was a fulfillment of Scripture. Specifically, probably Psalm 41, verse 9, where it says that one who ate bread with me, will lift his heel against me. Um, and there's several other psalms that that may be referencing, but at least Psalm 41.9 is what Jesus has in mind. And so what Jesus is saying is, it may look like I've lost one, but I really haven't. That one was chosen by me at the beginning of my ministry to actually fulfill a scripture that was given uh, thousands, <laughs> a thousand years before. That's how sovereign and in control God and the Son and the Spirit are over this work of salvation. So Jesus is asking though the the Father to keep them, the eleven disciples, to keep those who would come after them in His name. In verse 13, but now I'm coming to you, 
And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This was one of Jesus' hope. This is one of the results, Christian, of being kept in Him, being kept in Christ, being guarded by Christ, being guarded by God the Father. One of, of the fruits of that is joy. Joy that will enable you to persevere through the Son leaving the disciples physically on the earth. Joy that will help you persevere through the valley, through the shadow of darkness. It'll, the joy that we have in Christ knowing that we are kept and guarded, protected by God through His Son ought to give us great joy even in the midst of hardship, um, despair, whatever it may be. And so in verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Another aspect where there might be joy even in the midst of hate, specifically hate that comes from the result of holding fast to the word of God. Not hate because you're rude. And not hate because you're weird. Hate because you hold fast to the Word of the Gospel of God. There's joy to be had in the midst of that. And there's strength to be able to persevere in the midst of that because we are kept and guarded by Christ in God the Father. And so in verse 15, I do not ask you that you take them out of the world. Though many of us would be perfectly fine with that at certain moments in our life or even as soon as we trust Christ think okay take me now that I don't need anything else in this take take me now but that's not how God the Father God the Son the Holy Spirit chose to work this eternal plan of of salvation no Jesus made clear I'm not praying that you take them out of the world father that's not what I'm asking in this prayer but that you keep them from the evil one. And so there it is. There's the, the two sides of this, this coin called keeping. Both a keeping in the Lord and a keeping from the evil one. And we can rest assured, based on the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, on the authority of God's Word, that that will be done for us. But not only a keeping, keeping in and a keeping from, but Jesus says in, in verse 16, finishing that section, they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Leading into verse 17, he gives us this other prayer as he calls out to the Holy Father not only to keep them, but sanctify them. Both of these set apart and emphasized by, by being a command, an imperative uh, in, in the original language and modeling one another with the keep them and a sanctify them. And Jesus specifically says that it's in your word that we're going to be kept and it's by your word that we're going to be sanctified. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's uh, 
a preparation for the great commission that is going to come after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Um, before He ascends to the Father, Jesus will, in all of the Gospels, an aspect of His commission is recorded to go and make disciples, to go and proclaim the Gospel, to be sent out into the world. Um, we'll see in, later on in, in the Gospel of John. And for their sake, Jesus says, I consecrate Myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. There Jesus is saying, I'm going to consecrate Myself. I'm going to set Myself apart like a lamb to be sacrificed at the altar. I'm going to consecrate Myself. I'm going to be sacrificed Myself so that they could be kept, so that they could be sanctified. Uh, Jesus is going to do that so that we could continue to be made holy. And so in this prayer, uh, this middle section, for these disciples, and not only these disciples, but also for disciples who would come after them, uh, there is a prayer that Jesus is relying upon the Father to both keep, keeping them in Him and keeping them from the evil one, but also a, uh, that the Father would sanctify and that they would be sanctified regularly, daily, in the Word, by the Word, by the Spirit of God. That we would, hour by hour, day by day, year by year, become more holy. That's what that word means. As Jesus is praying to the Holy Father, He's saying, make them holy as you are holy. Father, make them like you. Make them like me. And this is why we have commandments, both in Leviticus and in Peter, to be holy as He is holy. And as we're not only commanded to be holy, but we trust that it will be Him who will end up making us holy along this process. And so we can rest assured in, in the midst of Jesus' prayer, realizing that we ourselves are being prayed for by Christ along with His disciples there, that these are going to be made good in our life. We will be kept. We will be sanctified all of our days. All of us who repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we will be kept till the very end. We will persevere. We will endure. We will, as the book of Revelations mentions, conquer till the end, and all of the promises to all of the churches in Revelation 2 through 3 will be ours, for we will be kept till the end. We will be sanctified more and more, each and every hour, each and every day, be made more and more like Christ. We will be made more holy as He is holy until that day when we stand before Christ and are robed in white robes made perfectly, uh, made perfect uh, to be li like Him there in heaven, worshiping the Lamb who looks as those slain, those standing around the throne. And so we have this, this prayer of Christ. And we ought to model our prayers in the same way. Each and every day, being dependent upon the Father to keep us, knowing that we in our own strength would not be able to do this that we in our own words 
would not be able to be made holy. But we need the words of God to guide us into the truth, to make us more holy, to make us more like Him. We need His help to keep us um, both in Him and from the evil one along this journey. And we can rest in the fact that He will make good on that promise. But then this last section, having looked up to heaven, asking both the Father and the Holy Father uh, to glorify the Son through the cross and to keep them and sanctify them, Jesus, now I'll summarize the last six verses as this, Righteous Father, make them one so that they might believe. Make them, make believers one so that they, the world, might believe. Look in verse 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. You see, Jesus' ministry and His prayer Even His crucifixion and His resurrection was not simply for them then. It was for us now. It was for those who came after them. And Jesus' prayer and Jesus' ministry, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, it's not even for us right now. Or even for just our church or even for just our city. or For sure not our country, but it's for our world And it's for those who would come after us. And Jesus is praying for those who would come after them then. And we ought to make our prayer likewise. That we would pray also, as we do Sunday after Sunday, for the nations. For those um, around the world that they might believe. Specifically this morning, for those in North Korea. That though they don't have the internet, the truth of God's Word would penetrate that dark closed country, that they would get the Word, that they would believe as the disciples believed, that they would be kept in the midst of persecution as the disciples and we are kept, that they would be sanctified in the truth. Notice that Jesus' prayer is not not closed off for just them, them, but it's, it's with a mission. It's with an external outward focus. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one. Remember, Jesus made His prayer that the disciples would be one, but now He's saying, it's not just you eleven. It's not just you Jews. I'm praying that the world would be one. And the world would be one, he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer, listen listen to this closing aspect of the prayer, is that the church would expand beyond that upper room to include thousands of in the next couple months, who would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And it would go to include not only Jews, but Gentiles. And he was desiring that both Jews and Gentiles, despite their differences, 
would come together as one in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that their oneness would not just be with one another horizontally, but that their oneness would be vertically with God and horizontally with one another. In the same way that uh, the Trinity has a oneness about it. Three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet one, one true and living God. The same would be true for us as a church, that there is a oneness with God that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, but there's also a oneness that we have with one another. And so all of us, despite our Uh, racial or ethnic backgrounds, despite our financial backgrounds, despite our educational backgrounds, uh, despite our political backgrounds, despite our geographical backgrounds, the church is united as one in the gospel of Jesus Christ, His crucifixion and His resurrection. And it's not just something we pray for, but it's something we live for. We set aside all of those categories that I just mentioned because they're secondary, even tertiary, to the primary category that we are now sons and daughters of God, that we are believers in Jesus Christ. None of, it's not that those things don't matter. They matter. They're just not primary in our lives. We, ha- we ought to recognize the differences Uh, of those categories that I mentioned. But we ought to hold fast to our unity. Our unity is in the Gospel. If our unity is based on any of those other things, we're going to have a horizontal, very siloed-off, like-minded church. But if we focus on the primary, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to make our church locally and the church universally look like what it's going to look like in heaven one day with people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language worshiping this Christ around the throne. That's what Jesus was giving these disciples a vision of. That's what He gives us a vision of. And just in closing, He he says in verse 22, the glory that You have given Me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus, the light of the world, has also said to us, the church, you are the light of the world. The glory that Jesus had, He's given to us that we could be a mirror reflecting the glory of God in the, the world around us. I in them, He says, and you in Me, that they may become perfectly one. We do our best to be one as a local church. And I've seen wonderful examples of that throughout the life of our church. Through a time when many churches were divided through the midst of COVID and certain other cultural uh, ramifications, to see the oneness of our church has been beautiful. We haven't been perfect at it. And yet, Jesus says he's he's, He's making us one, to one day be perfectly one as they are one. Father, he says in verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory 
that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. We, we get a taste of the glory of Jesus here on this earth in the gospel, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, when we experience the imperfect oneness of the church. We get a taste and a glimpse of it, but Jesus says not only does He want us to have a taste of it here on earth, He wants us to experience it perfectly and fully in the new heavens and the new earth. So we not only have this good news and this hope right here, right now, but we have something to look forward to, church. Uh, and, And there's more to be included in that across the street from you and across the aisle from you at work. There's more to be included this uh, in, our, in and around our state and our nation and around the world that we have to continue to go out to, proclaiming the Gospel to, this Gospel of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And so he concludes in verse 25 this summary, O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And was it not Jesus said, that when we go out to be the church in the world, that the world will, will know that we are His disciples by our love for one another. And so church, let's take up that, that prayer of Jesus uh, that He calls out to His Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, and prays that this Righteous Father would make us one, that He would make us one. One in Love for one another first and foremost. Because as convincing as us going out into the world and loving the world in some form or fashion is, as convincing as that is for some, it won't mean anything if when they come to visit us as a church and they see us divided and broken up and hating one another, they won't want that. What's most compelling to the world around us us, is a oneness in the church, a compelling community as has been written about, Uh, that we would be one as He is one. And when people ask us, well, how does that happen? You say, only the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, are we, as different as we all are, Uh, made one together because of our common bond of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And we go out from this place um, to proclaim this good news that the world too might be able to be one with God and with us and to be, be able to experience that oneness themselves if they too would take Jesus at His word, believe in Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection repenting of their sins. They too would be kept by God in Him and from the evil one all of the days of their life. They too would be sanctified and made more holy until one day Jesus 
returns. They too would be sent out into the world to invite their friends. And so, Christian, let's heed Jesus' prayer. Let's celebrate the cross uh, this morning through the Lord's Supper. Let's eat of the one bread that we will all break and eat in remembrance of Christ this morning, thanking Him, adoring Him, praising Him for who He is, for what He's done. Let's drink of the cup uh, of this both high priest and lamb who has shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins that we might be able to be one. Uh, let's, let's go out into the world and proclaim this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ so that others might believe, that others might be able to be welcome to eat and drink of this table uh, and be one with us. But if you're here this morning and you have yet to experience that oneness, you've yet to experience uh, that forgiveness of sins in the cross of Jesus, if you've yet to experience the hope of being kept by God, not your own strength. If you've been striving in your own efforts to be holy, to one day stand before God, hear, hear me, hear Christ in His own words and His prayer this morning that there's no way that you can do that on your own. Most of us in this room have recognized that. We bowed our knees because of our sin. We lifted our eyes to Christ and we asked Him to save and He did. And I'd encourage you to do that same thing. Take a posture of humility. Bow your knees. Repent of your sins. And at the same time, lift your eyes to heaven where Christ is seated and exalted. And trust Him alone to save you. And realize that in that moment, you're one of the ones that Jesus was praying for in this passage. For you've come to faith by the word of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, we praise You for Your plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and the cross. We pray You would keep us in You and from the evil one. Sanctify us as a local church. Sanctify us as a universal church to proclaim the goodness and greatness of our God and the salvation in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that You, as we are sent out by Christ week in and week out, uh, that You would help us go with the words of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, so that others might believe, and that many more would be made one in You through faith uh, in Jesus. Lord, I pray that You would forgive us of all the ways that we have not lived as one. Uh, forgive us of our judgment uh, against one another. Forgiveness, forgive us of our divisions, even in our own local church. Lord, make us more uh, as one as You are one. That we as a church would be even more compelling to the world around us here in Arlington and Mansfield. That they would want what we have in Christ alone. Lord, so much more to pray, so much more to seek this week as we take your prayer 
Jesus, as you prepared your disciples for your departure, Lord Jesus, we too want to prepare ourselves for a time when we will pass on the torch to our kids and to the church that follows us. Lord, help us to do that well. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.